Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. In fact, our final Politics Wednesday of 2023. Joining us for that, Sarah Mitchell, professor and collegiate fellow in the Department of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Sarah, welcome back to the program. Good to be here. Rachel Caulfield is with us as well, professor and co-chair in the Department of Political Science at Drake University in Des Moines. Rachel, welcome to you. Hi there, Ben. It's good to be here. Good to have you both on board and our listeners as well. If you'd like to join our conversation, especially with a question, as we are 25 days out from the uh, caucuses here in Iowa on January 15th, please join our conversation, 1-866-780-9100, or email river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Toward the end of the program, we'll be talking, focusing a little more on the caucuses, but of course, everything with politics <laughs> that happens in the days before the caucuses has some slant on the caucuses, so uh, keep that in mind. Uh, also, a new poll showing wide disapproval of President Biden on uh, the handling of the war in Gaza. We'll talk about uh, that a- as well. But of course, uh, the uh, top story obvious uh, since yesterday, the U.S. Supreme Court Uh, seems destined to play a pivotal role in these 2024 elections. Yesterday, uh, Colorado's top court uh, ruled that former President Donald Trump disqualified from holding office again because he engaged in insurrection with his actions leading up to the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Now, this is an argument that Donald Trump's opponents have been making around the country. But the Colorado Supreme Court was the first in the nation to find that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment Uh, This uh, Section 3 disqualifies people who engage in insurrection against the Constitution after taking an oath to support it applies to Donald Trump. Uh, It uh, directs the Colorado Secretary of State to exclude Donald Trump's name from the state's Republican primary ballot. Uh, does not address the general election. Uh, here's a, a quote from the four-justice majority. Uh, there were three uh, dissenting justices. We do not reach these conclusions lightly. We are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to, to apply the law without fear or favor and without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions that the law mandates we reach. Trump's campaign said immediately it would appeal the decision, and that's important to to note because uh, the uh, Supreme Court justices in Colorado anticipated that likelihood. They put the ruling on hold until at least January 4th. If the Trump campaign appeals before then, the hold will continue until the Supreme Court uh, of the U.S. uh, rules. Uh, Listeners, join us with your questions specifically about this, uh, especially if you're a a GOP caucus goer uh, in our state. Does this ruling make it more or less likely that you will caucus for Donald Trump on January 15th? 1-866-780-9100. 1-866-780-9100. Or email us river to river at iowapublicradio.com. Dot O-R-G. Uh, Rachel, let's start with you. How big are the implications here? Is yesterday likely to go down as a momentous date in American political history? Well, it's certainly another anomaly for Donald Trump. He just keeps racking up all these 
new precedents in American politics. Um, you know, I don't think we're I don't I don't think we can be absolutely sure yet what the long term consequences of this ruling are. Having said that, you know, assuming that this goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, assuming that the court provides adequate time for parties and interested advocacy groups to brief the case and submit friend of the court briefs, assuming that they hold oral argument and then have to come come out with a written ruling. By the time all of that happens at the U.S. Supreme Court, I mean, Colorado has to print their ballots on January 5th. Mm-hmm. Um, their primary is scheduled for March 5th. You know, the entire nomination is likely to be finished by Super Tuesday, really. So, um you know the the timing here is very strange um and it, it looks like absent an immediate stay by the US Supreme Court which is entirely possible a stay is just basically a pause in the implementation of a ruling um and that assume, would that would put Donald Trump on the primary ballot in Colorado yes Donald Trump mm-hmm. would then remain mm-hmm. on the ballot uh mm-hmm. in Colorado but, you know, then, of course, the fight for November comes up, right? Does he appear on the November ballot in any state across the country? If the Supreme Court upholds the Colorado court's decision, then presumably any court or any state court, any state elections officials could take his name off of the ballot on the justification that he's not qualified under the, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Um, and there have been similar cases in other states but none have come to this outcome. So it's mm-hmm. it's going to be, you know, I think a lot of people are looking at this and saying, well, it's a 6-3 conservative court right now. Obviously, Donald Trump is going to win um, at the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm not sure that that's, you know, that that's entirely a given in terms of the politics of it. I think the court is very likely to... Uh, rely on technicalities in this case. And there are a lot of technicalities in this case. Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit. Uh, Sarah Mitchell, your initial reaction uh, to this possibly historic ruling in Colorado? Well, it is a historic ruling. Well, we don't know if the implications (laughs) will be make more history, right? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the pundits are saying that anyway. Um, So, I mean, let me give a little bit of background about this. Um, You know, so the the 14th Amendment was something that came about after the American Civil War. um, And essentially, uh, the goal was to disqualify uh, individuals who had participated, you know, in uh, the rebellion, the Civil War in the South, um, to, to, you know, participate in uh, political office. And in 1872, in the Amnesty Act, uh, that removed those penalties that had been imposed on former Confederates. Um, so it cleared 150,000 former troops. Um, so essentially, the, the amendment was passed to deal with the post-Civil War situation. And then a few years later, the Amnesty Act was implemented. Um, but, you know, the 14th Amendment is is part of a, a broader process that political scientists call lustration. Um, and so this is when uh, politicians who collaborate with past abusive regimes, uh, you seek to either limit their access to public office or disqualify them from holding office entirely. And so this has been used by at least 59 countries following either civil wars, like in the case of the United States, or following 
uh, some kind of repressive authoritarian regime, like we saw a lot in Eastern Europe, for example. Uh, Czechoslovakia was one of the uh, early states after the fall of the Soviet Union to impose lustration. Um, and so uh, political scientists actually uh, study this across countries uh, and have found in general that these kind of lustration policies, at least if they're passed through legislative uh, processes like the U.S. 14th Amendment, Amendment was, can have positive impacts on the quality of representation in democracies. And so, so I just wanted to note that, mm-hmm. yes, this is an amendment in the United States, but it's part of a broader action that a lot of countries take following civil wars. Mm-hmm. We have uh, listeners with questions on this uh, major news. Terrence and Independence uh, called in to ask about the plaintiffs in this case. Um, she wants to know um, who, who they are and who their motives, what their motives are. Rachel, can you answer that? How was this? How was it, did this case case come about? Yeah, so a group of voters um, effectively brought this this case into the courts. They're Republican voters and uh, unaffiliated voters, those people who would be participating in the Republican primary in Colorado. Um, and one of the technical issues that that's at play here is the question of standing. Uh, and standing is just a judicial doctrine that that basically says that in order to bring a case, you have to demonstrate actual harm. Um, and and so a couple people have raised the question about whether or not these particular plaintiffs can argue that they have suffered harm, um, you know, simply by having Donald Trump's name on the ballot. And and so that may be one point where the U.S. Supreme Court weighs in to determine whether or not this collection of plaintiffs actually can demonstrate standing. Yeah. And in my reading here, taking some notes on the questions before the U.S. Supreme Court, and and Rachel, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court decides which cases it's ta- it takes. Right. But is there any any question that they will... They won't pass this one by. They can't. No, they will. They will need to take this case, yeah. and and they know that. Yeah. Okay. So so uh, some novel legal and constitutional questions uh, in the list here. Ha- I have from my reading. <laughs> there what, are lots. <laughs> yes. Right. Okay. So let's go through this list a little bit, and we'll have to continue on through uh, into the next uh, after the break. Was it an insurrection when Trump supporters stormed the Capitol on January sixth? Uh, trying to stop that certification, the 2020 election. If it was, uh, did the former president engage in an insurrection through his messages to supporters beforehand, his speech that morning, his Twitter posts during the the attack? Uh, Do courts have the authority to enforce the the third section of the 14th Amendment without any congressional reaction? And does this Section 3 apply to the the presidency, um, uh, Sarah, to you on this, I guess the office of the U.S. president uh, could be excluded from this law? Well, if you look at the judgment, they know that if, if you look back to the congressional debate that happened around the time the amendment was passed, there was actually a discussion of the president um, as being included in Section 3. And so... You think, uh, the, you, you think the, that's the that's judge, pretty clear? Yeah, the judges in the ruling actually refer to the historical debate and other legal cases that have, have brought that up. Mm-hmm. On the question of uh, it, do you need legislative authority to implement this, I mean, a lot of, well, again, in the judgment, 
the justices note that these Section 3 is self-executing. In other words, it's enforceable as a constitutional disqualification without implementing legislation by Congress. And so in that case, mm-hmm. uh, their p- legal position is that you would not need uh, an, a legislative act for that to be uh, to be implemented, that the that the amendment is self-executing. Okay. Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa with us. Sarah, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University are two very able political scientists dissecting this uh, latest big news from yesterday, Colorado's top court ruling that the former president, Donald Trump, disqualified from holding office again. Um, we'll talk more about it when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. We're back midstream in this edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. The final Politics Wednesday of the year. Rachel Caulfield with us of Drake University, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, two political scientists as we tackle all the major story that surfaced yesterday. Uh, Colorado's top court ruling that former President Trump disqualified from holding office again uh, because he engaged in insurrection as the court um, judged uh, with his actions leading up to the January 6th storming of the Capitol. Uh, And uh, join us with your questions about this or uh, other top politics of this uh, these past few days, one 780 9100 25 days out from the caucuses. Uh, let's, um, uh, let's go to our first caller, uh, Aaron, called one 780 9100 Thanks for holding on, Aaron. What's on your mind? Hi. I have a question about technicality. So if former President Trump is removed from primary ballots in Colorado or potentially other states, how feasible or allowable would it be for primary delegates in those states to still nominate him, mm-hmm. regardless of the fact that he either did not win the primary mm-hmm. or was not on the ballots in those states? Good question, Aaron. Rachel, can you tackle that? Yeah, so there are a couple different options here. One would be a widespread write-in campaign in a primary process. Um, Another possibility, and and then, of course, that would have to be adjudicated as to whether or not he can appear on a general election ballot. Um, The other option is something that the Colorado Republican Party has brought up, which is that they may withdraw from the state's primary process entirely. Uh, Remember, of course, that primaries are run by the state government, by state elections officials. Um, And what they're proposing is that instead they might move to a party-run caucus where the party would control the process entirely and therefore state law presumably would not dictate who could be supported by any of the party members in the room. Uh, We in Iowa, of course, are very familiar with caucuses. Um, Most states across the country are not very familiar with caucuses. But that is one possibility that would allow the party to get around this ruling so that they could have their party-run caucus, they could vote for Donald Trump, and delegates to the National Convention could support Donald Trump. 
Yeah. Sarah Mitchell, uh, to you with this uh, about wider um, ramifications here, could this Colorado ruling embolden other judges and states to go down a similar road uh, in, in a way that counts? We have Colorado there, which has trended very blue in recent um, uh, elections, and also I don't think it's seen as in the in the primary season as a a linchpin for any candidate here. But we're looking at these other implications, right? Because one state broke the ice, so to speak. Yeah, well, I think it's another step in getting the Supreme Court to uh, potentially intervene here. And so Jack Smith had also pressed that possibility, right, by going directly to SCOTUS, asking them to consider whether, you know, the, whether the president could be charged in the way he was in the federal case. Um, and so I, I think um, all of these things are pointing to the fact that the Supreme Court is going to have to intervene, you know, maybe sooner than expected. Um, how that plays out in the election, it, it's not clear right at this point. Um, mm-hmm. If you look at uh, uh, polling data, you know, as there's more legal action against Trump, he's polling more strongly among Republicans. And so uh, at least with the base, I don't think it's going to have an effect. But how it could play out with, you know, say, independence in a general election is a different matter. And so so I do think um, this Colorado ruling is going to, uh, you know, as Rachel was saying, it's very likely that the Supreme Court is going to respond to this. And mm-hmm. so it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. Yeah, Sarah, do you agree with Rachel here that uh, this U.S. Supreme Court, with a 6-3 conservative majority, three of the justices appointed by Donald Trump himself, uh, does that tell us anything about how they may rule in this matter, Sarah, do you think? Well, as I understand it, the, the Colorado ruling was written in a way that in some ways is a kind of strict constructionist interpretation. Um, and so you could argue that the justices are being strategic in a way um, for, you know, taking a conservative tactic in how they wrote the judgment um, so that it, yeah. it would make it more challenging potentially for yeah. judges on the Supreme yeah. Court to not follow that kind of approach that many of them have advocated for in the past. Yeah. Jenny Thomas, the wife of Clarence Thomas on our high court, attended the rally before uh, that Capitol Capitol riot. Um, Her involvement scrutinized here. Rachel, um, would uh, Thomas recuse himself? Is that a a choice solely that uh, Justice Thomas would take? That is solely and completely at his discretion. So I don't guess that he would recuse uh, in this case. So, and, you know, I would just add, if he did recuse, it raises the possibility of an eight or a 4-4 split among Mm -hmm. eight justices hearing the case, which, you know, as if this couldn't get any messier, right? Uh, (laughs) This is going to be, I think, it raises so many interesting procedural questions, you know, in addition to recusal, you also have this political questions doctrine that the Supreme Court has really relied on to punt on any question that it believes is better settled in the political realm. Um, and and this seems to be a political question. There's no doubt this has huge political ramifications. 
does the court want to wade into this? Um, or do they do they try to kind of wiggle their way out of the case by saying, you know what, this case is not not really one that is properly best decided, bef- you know, at, in the courts. It's best decided by the voters, or it's best decided by state elections officials. We, I mean, there are a lot of different options here, and the case doesn't neatly fit into so many of mm-hmm. the ways that we think about Supreme Court decision making. Jeff in Dubuque called in to ask this question. If Trump is found guilty by Jack Smith's trial um, and loses citizenship, I'm not so sure if that's a penalty that the, the, the former president could face. But anyway, on with Jeff's question in Dubuque. Is that the element that would cause him to be removed from qualification for president? Hmm. Um, uh, Rachel, does that not speak to you? Oh, uh, would, I mean, is, is citizenship a, a pen, possible penalty here? I have to be honest and say that I don't know the answer to that. Perhaps Sarah does. Um, I will say, you know, well, yeah, go ahead, Sarah. I was just going to say in, in the in the federal case, he hasn't been charged with insurrection or rebellion in any of his right. criminal cases. And so he... You know, Jack Smith's office charged him with conspiracy to fraud, defraud the U.S., conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights. So, so what's happening in the Colorado case is not directly relevant to that uh, in terms of those specific charges not being brought. Yeah, but this is a real pileup of other Trump-related matters that the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed or will likely agree to decide, isn't it? We have the immunity from criminal prosecutions for actions he took in office, the scope of an obstruction charge that is central to the federal January 6th case. So, but Sarah, I, yeah, Sarah's exactly right about this. He has not been charged with insurrection or rebellion. He has not been found guilty of insurrection or rebellion. Mm-hmm. And many people have raised the question that, you know, the 14th Amendment is probably best known for its protection of due process. And so in the absence of an adjudicated ruling indicating guilt and participation in an insurrection or rebellion, you know, removing him uh, from the ballot basically deciding that he, uh, under the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, is disqualified from holding office, um, absent any court decision to that effect, you know, that's a, that's a particularly strange <laughs> series of events. Mm-hmm. It's, but, but the Colorado court did rule that, that he participated in, in insurrection, so they, in their list of questions that they answered to get to the ruling that they did. The Colorado court decided that as part of a civil case, which is very different than a criminal mm. uh, criminal prosecution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, of course, and, and uh, Trump supporters vehemently saying, you know, this was not an insurrection. Here's uh, Trump's campaign um, uh, here uh, saying, uh, unsurprisingly, the all-Democrat anointed, appointed Colorado Supreme Court has ruled against President Trump supporting a Soros-funded left-wing group scheme to interfere in an election on behalf of Crooked Joe Biden, uh, we can imagine the way that goes on. Donald Trump was in Waterloo yesterday, did not explicitly mention the Colorado Supreme Court decision uh, yesterday evening in in, in Waterloo. Um, Sarah, no question here, Republican elected officials, most of them quickly circling the wagons around Donald Trump, as far as you can see? Yeah, it makes sense that they would... Um 
you know, like the question earlier about who brought the case, and it was primarily Republican voters and and other uh, voters who can participate in the Republican primary. Um, so, but you know, the the spin that's put out is that this is some kind of liberal court with a liberal agenda. Um, I wanted to mention on the insurrection point uh, mm-hmm. that Chief Justice Brian Boatwright, you know, one of the parts of his dissent was saying that removing Trump from the ballot would require an insurrection related conviction. Um, but this is a legal point again, that the Supreme court would have to weigh in on, because if you look at um, section three, it, it says that people can be disqualified if they engaged in an insurrection or rebellion. And so uh, if you look back at, you know, legal writings in the post civil war reconstruction era, they understood an insurrection to have occurred you know, when two or more people resisted a federal law by force or violence uh, for a public or civic purpose. And so in that regard, things like Shay's Rebellion or the Whiskey Insurrection or John Brown's Raid were all considered to be insurrection events. Um, and so I think that's going to be an interesting uh, legal point that the court will take up in terms of, um, you know, would would one need a conviction uh, in order for Trump to be removed from the ballot or and or not, depending on how you read Section 3? Yeah, but I mean, here, trying to prevent the certification of a duly elected president, President Biden, in this case in 2020, would 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 fit in that, wouldn't it, Sarah? Yes, and I think that's why the, the majority, you know, in, in terms of whether there's evidence that he participated in an insurrection, four of the seven justices came down on the side of yes. Mm-hmm. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer with Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University. Time quickly slipping away from us. We mm-hmm. wanted to touch on some other things. Of course, that uh, repercussions of that news story from Colorado, uh, that ruling uh, will follow us for many days. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about the, the war in the Middle East. Um, on the domestic, and Sarah, I want to ask you in just a moment more to lean on your international relations uh, credentials there, but to the domestic front first here, um, we have some new polling um, uh, to, to you on this, uh, Rachel. Voters broadly disapproving of the way President Biden is handling the strife between Israelis and Palestinians. This is according to a New York Times-Siena poll. Um, Younger Americans, especially, far more critical than older voters of both Israel's conduct uh, and of the administration's response to the war in Gaza. Uh, Voters between 18 and 29, traditionally heavily Democratic, uh, jump out here. Three-quarters of them disapprove of the way Biden is handling this conflict. Rachel, comment on on that aspect of the poll or what else you found interesting there? I mean, this, is, this has been a huge shift. Um, and all the usual caveats apply here, right? We're 11 months away from a general election. Um, there are you know, national polling is is not the best way to to assess a general election for the presidency. Having said all of that, we're seeing this shift happening among the American population, and it's particularly acute among young voters. There's a definite generational divide here. You're seeing, you know, in July, among voters 18 to 29, young voters favored Joe Biden by 10 points. Um, and right now it's within the margin of error, but 
Donald Trump is is at 49 and Joe Biden at 43 among registered voters who are 18 to 29. That's a huge shift. Mm -hmm. Biden's coalition really depends upon motivated young voters who, who who are willing to come to the polls and support him. That's that's a big part of the coalition. Obviously, black voters are a big part of the coalition. If you look at kind of uh, there's a question in the poll that was done by the New York Times, right? And it says, so in this dispute between Israel and the Palestinians, which side do you sympathize with more? And among black voters, um, 28% say Israel, 34% say Palestine. And if you look at their approval for Joe Biden, it's dropped dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, and so that Biden coalition that is really essential if we're essentially replaying the 2020 election, um, you know, the, the White House has real reason to be concerned right now on how this issue is affecting his electoral coalition. And it may be one reason why we're seeing a real push by the White House to to encourage Israel to wrap up hostilities by you know, yeah. by the end of the year or shortly thereafter. But, you know, we're seeing the stance shift. Mm -hmm. The U.N. Security Council meeting in, in another attempt to pass a resolution calling for a halt in fighting on the Gaza Strip. The Biden administration has vetoed several ceasefire resolutions. Uh, Sarah, your comment on either this polling or, or what's happening there at the U.N.? Well, I think, you know, Biden is taking what has been a traditional foreign policy position in the United States, which is, uh, you know, to protect Israel's right to exist, which Hamas does not recognize. Um, and so this was, you know, uh, an incredibly, uh, you know, deadly attack uh, on October 7th. And uh, I guess a good analogy would be imagine after 9-11 that other countries told the United States that they could not respond with force. Uh, you know, the U.S., you know, went into war in Afghanistan, right, to yeah. uh, retaliate against the country for allowing Osama bin Laden to, to live to be there, right, physically. Um, and so... So I think if you think about it from that perspective, right, America, imagine Americans being told that you would not or, be allowed to respond. Or, Sarah, go back even uh, further. Imagine that after Pearl Harbor. America, mm -hmm. you may not respond, right? Yes. Right. So, I, so I think Biden is taking the, the position that, look, this was an attack on Israeli soil that was initiated by Hamas, and so they have the right of self-defense. Um, now, young people are upset about this because— Gaza, of course, um, has been, you know, often described as an open air prison. So essentially, uh, you know, people in Gaza do not have free movement either on land or by sea. They are beholden to the Israelis in terms of their water, electricity and, you know, food and other supplies going in and out. Um, I visited one of the Gaza checkpoints when I was in Israel, and, and yeah, it was just a really sobering reality to, to be presented with. Uh, that, you know, you're looking at the amount of okay. trucks sitting there and thinking like that, that can't be enough, right, to, to feed all of the people in Gaza. Short break. We'll be back with Sarah Mitchell and Rachel Caulfield. It's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Back with more River to River from IPR News. 
I'm Ben Kiefer. It's our final Politics Wednesday of the year, 2023. Glad to have on board with us Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University. Join us, 1-866-780-9100. Uh, 25 days or so out from the caucuses on January 15th. Um, and uh, let, let's talk a little bit about what's been under a spotlight, uh, the former president's rhetoric. Uh, in the last few weeks, uh, the former president has said he'd be a dictator for one day. He has echoed anti-sentiment, uh, immigrant, anti-immigrant words of Adolf Hitler, called for the terminating of the Constitution, lied about America's election system, vowed to use the power of the Justice Department as his personal tool for revenge. Um, former President Trump using inflammatory language to demonize immigrants uh, during a Saturday campaign speech in New Hampshire. Here's a short collection of Trump's statements that aired on PBS NewsHour yesterday. They're poisoning the blood of our country. We will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country that lie and steal and cheat on elections. It's so bad, and people are coming in with disease. People are coming in with with every possible thing that you can have. Okay. Um, NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday had Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina asked about that. Of course, he's now a big backer of Trump. He had this to say about the language used by the former president. I could care less what language people use as long as we get it right. I believe in legal immigration. I have no animosity toward people trying to come to our country. I have animosity against terrorists and against drug dealers, but I understand why people want to come to America. But we have chaos and we need to create order. If you think you're going to win the debate on illegal immigration by picking a line out of the Trump speech, most Americans understand the game has to change, that we're under threat, that we're going to get attacked, that our border has completely been obliterated. So if you're talking about the language Trump uses rather than trying to fix it, that's a losing strategy for the Biden administration. Sarah Mitchell, what do you make of this uh, controversy over the language which continues and uh, the former president adding to it, it seems, uh, week by week with more inflammatory language? Well, first of all, when people use this language in history, they mean it. And, you know, we know that Hitler, his regime killed six million Jews and started a war that killed 52 million people globally. It's one of the most costly things that the planet has ever experienced. Um, so, you know, to not take these kind of things seriously is ridiculous. Uh, second of all, um, you know, saying that he had never read Mein Kampf, uh, well, his, according to Ivana Trump in an interview in the 90s, she said that he had a bedside table book that had uh, speeches uh, that Hitler gave. And so he and if you look at Hitler's speeches and what Trump is saying, they're they're very similar in language. So for example, uh Hitler said in Mein Kampf, all the great civilizations of the past became decadent because the originally creative race died out as a result of contamination of the blood. And he links the poison which has invaded the national body to an influx of foreign blood. Uh the use of the term vermin also used in Mein Kampf. Um, so, so you know, why do these things matter? Because we know if we look at the data in the U.S. that there, there's an increasing amount of threats and attacks, uh, especially by what right-wing groups against, uh, you know, various uh, 
especially non-white populations. And so these things do have consequences. And we're certainly seeing that right in this conflict between uh, support for Israel and the Palestinians. Like that's also playing out in terms of both anti-Semitic and anti-Palestinian you know, words and actions and violence in the U.S. That, that's being carried out. And so, so the, these statements absolutely do matter, and we should not dismiss them. Mm-hmm. Rachel, do you see it differently? Well, I think I just approach the politics of it a little bit differently in terms of, you know, right after the 2016 election, I recall that very, you know, oft-quoted phrase that, Donald Trump's opponents take him literally but not seriously, while his supporters take him seriously but not literally. I think Donald Trump is a showman, first and foremost. Donald Trump understands that getting attention, even for incendiary, horrible rhetoric, he's dominating the debate, right? We continue to be talking about Donald Trump um, because he says horrible things. And he knows that. And as long as he's dominating the conversation, that means we're not talking about other issues, other problems. This is, in my mind, the the one kind of great skill that Donald Trump has been able to use to shift American politics and certainly the Republican Party in, you know, in his direction. The entire political system really is being animated by Donald Trump. Um, And so, you know, the more outrageous he can be, the more attention he will get and the more he will dominate that conversation. Right now, given everything else that's going on, particularly legal troubles against him as we head into, you know, the, the final weeks before the Iowa caucus, he's being removed from the Colorado ballot. Like, this is not a good week for him. It's not a surprise that he is using more and more outrageous language to reclaim that attention. Mm -hmm. Less than a month before the Iowa caucus, uh, the GOP caucus, uh, Nikki Haley um, uh, there, uh, according to polling, uh, toe-to-toe with Ron DeSantis, uh, she's sharpening her criticism at her Republican rivals, uh, accusing Donald Trump of cozying up to uh, dictators. Let's listen to uh, this. Uh, this is a part of uh, Clay Masters' interview uh, with Nikki Haley that will air this afternoon on All Things Considered. Let's have a listen. Policy in the world on fire. I don't agree with Ron DeSantis saying Ukraine's a territorial dispute, and I don't agree with Trump praising these dictators. You don't go and say Hezbollah's smart. You don't congratulate the Chinese Communist Party on their 70th anniversary. You don't praise President Xi a dozen times after he gave the world COVID. You just don't do that. Instead, you let countries know what we expect of them. And now more than ever, we need to come at them strong. This is about preventing war. That's our number one goal is how do we prevent war? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Sarah, what do you make of Nikki Haley sharpening her criticism uh, at uh, Trump specifically cozying up to dictators, these sorts of comments? Well, I think she's trying to distinguish herself, right, heading into the Iowa caucuses and, and other primaries and caucuses. And, and so I think she's establishing herself as a more centrist uh, you know, protector of the liberal international order. Um, and, you know, when she says something like this is about peace, well, we know, right, that uh, no two fully democratic countries have ever fought a war against each other. And so what this is referred to as the democratic peace. Um, and so 
the more autocratic countries and the more democratic backsliding that we have internationally, the more, uh, you know, the higher the probability that we're going to see more wars, um, not only between countries, but also uh, those countries that backslide uh, also have a higher risk for civil wars or terrorism. And so, so I think um, there are a lot of consequences, right, for not responding to these threats to democracy globally. And and she's also, um, you know, I, th- I think being tough on on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which I think is also important uh, because, as we discussed in previous programs, there's there's other uh, countries, right, that are starting to make revisionist claims to their neighbors' territorial areas, and so this does have implications, you know, not only for uh, what's happening in Ukraine, but also for other you know, decisions by China with respect to Taiwan or or in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, before, uh, Rachel, you respond, let me play this new ad by former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, uh, releasing his first television ad uh, last week, criticizing Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, their campaigns for going after each other in their respective ads, but not attacking Trump themselves. Let's listen to the ad. Nikki Haley, down by 26 in her home state to Trump, attacks DeSantis. Too lame to lead, too weak to win. DeSantis, down 32 to Trump in Iowa, attacks Nikki Haley. You can't trust Tricky Nikki. There's only one candidate trying to stop Trump. Chris Christie is the only one who can beat Trump because he's the only one trying to beat Trump. I'm in this race because the truth needs to be spoken. He is unfit. I'm Chris Christie, and I approve this message. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie polling consistently at about 1%. But, Rachel, comment on that and the uh, <laughs> what we're seeing in the final weeks uh, in the run-up to the GOP caucus. Yeah, so I guess in some ways this is a follow-up from my last point about, about Donald Trump, right? Yesterday, after the Colorado Supreme Court decision, you saw candidate after candidate after candidate step up and have the same line. And the same line was, this is not something a court should decide. This is something the voters should decide, right? Mm -hmm. This is an implicit acceptance that Donald Trump should be on the ballot. So over and over and over again, Donald Trump has been very successful in kind of catching his rivals in these moments where they they end up supporting him. And so Chris Christie's argument, I think, is pretty spot on, right? They're, they've tried to find a middle way to differentiate themselves without differentiating themselves, um, without alienating the loyal Trump base of the Republican Party. And that has proven to be an exceptionally difficult task as we head into the final weeks before the Iowa caucus. And then, of course, this gamut of state after state after state. Um, you know, right now, the candidates are vying for second place. Mm-hmm. Once upon a time, Ben, on this program, you you asked, what are the chances that Donald Trump is going to lose the or is going to win the Iowa caucus? And I said, nope, it's guaranteed. Donald mm-hmm. Trump is going to win the Iowa caucus, everyone. Um, you know, the, the question is, can a Ron DeSantis or a Nikki Haley, can they pull out a strong enough second place finish? that going out of Iowa, it seems as though there might be a viable alternative to Donald Trump. If Haley and DeSantis continue to split the the not-Trump vote, 
then it's hard to imagine that either of them emerges. Chris Christie, of course, is hoping that they split the the not Trump vote in Iowa and then he is able to kind of step in and have a big win or a big you know, big showing in New Hampshire that that kind of re-energizes his campaign or gives him some momentum nationally, which seems um, improbable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at this point, the the path is pretty clear for Donald Trump. It's not at all clear for any other Republican candidate. Do you see it the, the same way as you look over the, the next few weeks and, and months, Sarah Mitchell? Yeah, I mean, I think a year ago, this was a rational strategy, right? That especially if you thought that one of the many court cases against Trump could potentially disqualify him from running uh, in some way. And so if you thought that was or or he was going to be convicted of something which could change the way voters think about him. Um, so I think it made sense a year ago. Now that we're so close to the caucuses, you know, it, it it's very clear that any legal action that happens is not likely to happen in a time frame um, that could affect the outcome. Although Jack Smith going directly to the Supreme Court, um, I, I think kind of surprised people in terms of potentially pushing up uh, the, the timetable on that on, on, the, on but, that but, case. But yeah. but I think um, but I think essentially, you know, you're seeing this shift in. Nikki Haley now because, right, we're getting so close to when people are actually going to be caucusing and voting that that she is trying to do more to delineate herself from Trump. Yeah. Am I correctly recalling, though, it was just a year ago uh, in December of 2022 that Ron DeSantis, uh, Rachel, was polling ahead of Donald Trump, right? He had a, a real shining moment and then precipitously dropped. Yeah, there like was a, 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 a brief moment there for Ron DeSantis. <laughs> um, and, you know, the I think it's very common. Ron DeSantis to a lot of people was seen as kind of the bright shining star rising in the Republican Party. As he got out on the campaign trail, that became less obvious to people. He, of course, has had a number of bumps along the way with his super PAC and his campaign organization. And mm-hmm. um, so Nikki Haley has found some openings. Um, as we go into these final weeks, I would encourage anybody who wants to participate in the Republican caucuses to go out and see the candidates. This is our chance. Yeah. Um, by, by the way, I'll mention again that um, Clay Masters' interview of Nikki Haley this afternoon on All Things Considered. T- tomorrow morning on Morning Edition, his interview with Ron DeSantis is planned. Uh, so do stay tuned for that. And tomorrow on this program, we'll do a home state view of uh, Ron DeSantis. Um, I spoke recently with Matt Dixon. He's based in Tallahassee in Florida, senior national political correspondent for NBC. He formed the former Politico Florida bureau chief. Um, So um, to get that view, our home state view, a a little different vantage point on the candidates than we have in the day-to-day coverage here. Quick question on the way out. Our final Politics Wednesday edition for 2023, Sarah and Rachel. So much consequential political news this past year. However, 2024 may hold even more significant developments. Uh, Very quick so that both of you get in here. Sarah, in 30 seconds or so, your thoughts on the new year we are about to enter. Well, I think we'll be continuing to watch uh, wars in Ukraine and and Gaza and and 
see how those things unfold and and if there's any dramatic shift i think foreign policy issues in general are not don't typically affect elections but you're seeing uh with the that data on young voters that they are very mobilized on the the palestinian issue so i think it'll be interesting to to see how the Biden administration continues to evolve in its response to that. Your 30 seconds, Rachel Caulfield, to wind up this program. I'm just going to suggest that everybody take a good long rest over the holidays, because as soon as we come back, you know, Ukraine funding runs out on December 30th. We'll know more about the Colorado ballot on January 5th. We have the last Iowa debate before the caucuses on the 10th. We have the caucus on the 15th. Uh, By January 19th, we have the deadline for government funding uh, to avoid a shutdown. Um, And then, of course, New Hampshire on the 23rd. And then we're in it. Um, so it's going to be an exhausting January. <laughs> so okay. Anyone who's interested in politics, rest up now. <laughs> rest up, take a deep breath, and uh, let's thank Rachel Caulfield of Drake University, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa. Thank you both for your analysis. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Okay. River to River today, produced by Samantha McIntosh with help from Caitlin Troutman, our executive producer, Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.